I think a lot of people in our culture wonder around this time of year uh, if the Christmas story is really true. Recently, I was on my way uh, into the Holland Tunnel, and I saw this billboard uh, behind me. It says, you know it's a myth. Uh, This Christmas, this season, celebrate reason. Put out by the American Atheist Association. Uh, Maybe you saw that, and maybe it upset you. Uh, But it really didn't upset me that much. Really what it told me is that a lot of people in our culture have serious questions about the truth claims of Christmas. And to be honest, I did too. Uh, There was a time in my life where I was really struggling with some of the claims of Jesus. And uh, I had a lot of doubts. I had a lot of questions. And I began to listen to some critics and some skeptics. And I had some questions that I didn't get answers to right away. And I wanted to see evidence. I really wanted to see for myself. I wanted to, to separate fact from fiction. And I wanted to ask this question, is this story really true? Who really was that child in the manger? And so I went on this quest. And I think if you haven't already, you should go on a similar quest yourself. It's so important because everybody has to decide what they believe about Christmas. The stakes are very high. The questions that Christmas raises are really big questions. Questions about life and death, questions about heaven and hell, questions about the purpose of our existence, questions about the meaning of life. And so it's worth looking into this question really carefully. Let me put it this way. Let's say you needed some kind of major surgery. Something was wrong with you physically. What do you do when you need surgery? Well, you're going to do a lot of research. You're probably going to go ask your primary care physician. Uh, Maybe you'd get a a second opinion. Maybe you'd ask for a referral. Maybe you'd ask some of your friends uh, if they have some referrals uh, for you. Why? Because you want to get the surgeon that's best. You want to make a good decision about that uh, because you know the day is coming where you're going to go under. And that person is going to do that surgery on you. And the only question that day is going to be, did you put your faith in the right place? Uh, In a similar way, that's what I'm saying here. There's going to come a time in our lives where we're all going to go under, so to speak. And pass on from this life. And the question on that day will be for all of us. Did we put our faith in the right place? And so that's what I want to share with you this morning as we summarize some of those discoveries. But before we get into the word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gorgeous holiday. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to celebrate. And I pray as we look at your word now uh, that you would open it up to us, uh, that we might see your truth and spirit of God. Would you do what only you can do? And open up our hearts and open up our eyes and open up uh, deaf ears to hear uh, the beauty of your word, the beauty of your son now. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Allow me to open up our cultural moment this morning this way. You need to know uh, that no other person in all of history has been manipulated, changed, and caricatured quite as much as the person of Jesus Christ. A lot of people are playing a game Uh, that Dr. Paul Meyer of Western Michigan University calls the Jesus game. The Jesus game. Now, here's how you play the Jesus game. Uh, You read the Gospels, uh, but you don't read them that carefully, uh, and you draw up a picture of Jesus, uh, which looks a little bit like the Jesus of the Bible, but you make him look uh, slightly different, and you come up with something that's a little bit sensational. And then you write a book about it, and you sell lots of copies of your book, and if people line up uh, to purchase that book and listen to you talk about your new theory about Jesus, you win the game. Let me just give you a few examples of some players out there. A few decades ago, there was a book called Jesus the Passover Plotter. 
Hugh Schoenfield, 1965. This was about Jesus at the end of his life uh, plotting uh, secretly to finish some of those Jewish prophecies about the Messiah. And the book talks about how he took a narcotic on the cross. He didn't really die. That's why he thought he was raised from the dead. And, and that book was popular for a while, but then conservative scholars and historians got busy writing against that crazy theory. They said, wait a minute, that doesn't work. How could he really predict his heritage, his lineage, his birthplace? The, the theory made no sense. But just as soon as that kind of got under control in 1967, we had the next person who wanted to play the Jesus game, this caricature of Jesus, known as Jesus the Radical Revolutionary. S.G.F. Brandon wrote this book called Jesus and the Zealots. Here, Jesus is painted as a political revolutionary, fighting against the powers of his day, uh, and so forth. And you can see why this would resonate with our culture back in the 1960s, right? Then this kind of petered out. Even Brandon, at the end of his life, said, I think I overdid it. Yeah, bro, you kind of did, man. Thanks for nothing. After this, the game continues, as it always does. John Allegro comes along, along and and he writes this book, uh, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, subtitle, Did the Christ Figure Evolve from a Primitive Fertility uh, Cult? And here, the Gospels are said to be written by drug addicts who got high eating this certain kind of mushroom. I kid you not, this passes off as real history. It was published by Doubleday, normally a reputable publisher. I'm not sure exactly what happened here, but people are buying this stuff. It sells. After this, we have Jesus the Master Magician, Morton Smith, 1978. Jesus was just like Houdini, like David Copperfield, kind of did magic tricks and stuff like that. Then in the early 80s, you had this controversial movie come out, The Last Temptation of Christ, talking about how Jesus was attempted physically in a way not recorded in the Gospels, very offensive to uh, Christians for obvious reasons. After that, you have this group of people come together called the Jesus Seminar, and they publish their findings in a book called The Five Gospels. In the process, they end up eliminating 70 to 80% of what the Gospels said as historical. Just crazy. And since then, it's been critiqued, and and they found that that didn't even represent mainstream critical scholarship. The most popular guy in the Jesus Seminar was John Dominic Crossan. You've probably seen him on the History Channel. And uh, he comes along and portrays Jesus as a Mediterranean peasant. Uh, Jesus was just a wandering sage, just telling these pithy sayings and and clever jokes and and, uh, speaking wisdom to the lower classes, to the powers that be. Uh, In there, he denies anything supernatural. He denies uh, the resurrection. Uh, He says, Jesus died. The reason why there was no body is because probably uh, some wild dogs must have eaten his bones. Really? Without any historical evidence for that whatsoever, that's his theory. Uh, People buy this stuff like crazy. Moving on, you probably remember a decade ago, this book came out by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Here he says uh, some pretty outlandish things, like Jesus was married and he had children. Then there was this conspiracy of those children to kind of keep them secret. And, and Dan Brown says, well, you know, you've you got to read the Gnostic Gospels to get that information. Even though there's a consensus among scholars that the Gnostic Gospels were second and third century spurious writings falsely attributed to the the Gospels, the, that, the, the Apostles. That's where we go to find truth, really, really, Dan Brown. There was no other competing Gospels in the first century. This guy makes it sound like it's like the NCAA tournament, like you had the Sweet 16, then you had the Elite Eight, then you had the Final Four, and they make it into the, the Bible. That's not the way it was at all. Last but not least, today we have the media darling Bart Ehrman. Written a lot of New York Times best-selling books, criticizing pretty much everything in the New Testament, but now his views are being challenged. You can go to the website, ermanproject.com, simply devoted to debunking 
uh, his writings. And though he's still popular, I think he, like the other people up there, will one day pass along too. But when he does, don't get excited because somebody else will raise up who wants to play the Jesus game. I don't know. It's interesting to me why people do this. Just look up at the screen for a second. You know what's fascinating? People often accuse evangelicals of believing some crazy stuff, right? But look at what these people are putting out. This guy says Jesus just did magic tricks and started a new movement. This other guy says Jesus had a secret wife and kids and nobody really knew about that. This other guy says the whole Christian movement was started based on a hoax. And this guy says Jesus ate a bunch of mushrooms and got high with his disciples on drugs. I mean, it makes you wonder if the author was the one getting high on mushrooms a little bit, don't you think? I mean, come on. Are you serious? But nonetheless, people buy this stuff left and right. It sells. There's money to be made here by playing the Jesus game. I think people enjoy conspiracy theories. Maybe they have trust issues. But they believe this stuff. It's sensational. And it sells. It makes all the news. And before it gets a chance to get critiqued by conservative scholars, the old saying is true. A lie can reach halfway around the world before the truth even has a chance to put its boots on. And so that's the Jesus game. And, and what's interesting to me about this whole game is that there's something about Jesus, isn't there? Uh, people don't do this with like Buddha or Mohammed or other religious figures. There's something about Jesus. When the dust settles, there he is, isn't he? It's like if you want to start this new movement, you can't do so without having Jesus' endorsement, can you? Why is that? It's a good question. Maybe something deep inside of us knows this story is really true. These theories can be critiqued and, and refuted, and if you look into them yourself, you'll find that the real story found in the Bible in front of you is the one you can trust, and that's what I want to show you today. In fact, that's what they did at the very beginning. We've been in the Gospel of Luke over the last uh, four weeks. Did you notice how the shepherds first responded to that news about Jesus? It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 15, here's how they responded. Let's go to Bethlehem and see. Can we say that together? Let's go to Bethlehem and see. Now, just think about that. That's how the shepherds reacted. They didn't dismiss it, though it was an extraordinary claim. They didn't try to explain it away as a hoax or a hallucination. Nor did they uncritically just accept it as a fact, right? What did they do? They, let's go to Bethlehem and see for ourselves this thing that has happened. In other words, they investigated the claim. And that's exactly what God invites us to do as well. To go and see and investigate this claim about Christmas. Because when I saw those words, I thought, man, that's great. That, that's what I needed to do, too. I needed to go and see for myself what happened. And so today I have a bit of an agenda. I'm going to tell you up front so that it's not a hidden agenda. I want to challenge you. And the challenge is this. If you ever uh, prayed a prayer when you were a kid asking God to come into your heart, or if you, if, if you ever entered in it, into any kind of relationship uh, with Christ, but then as time went on, you kind of wandered away, for whatever reason, maybe you had doubts or maybe you had questions or maybe you went to college and you kind of drifted away then or maybe somebody told you something about the Bible that caused you to lose your confidence or maybe there was a tragedy in your life and you prayed and nothing happened and so you kind of lost your faith and you became angry and, and you left. I don't know your story and I'm not here to judge that. I'm not here to say what you did was wrong, but here's what I want to challenge you to do. Here's what I want to urge you to do. Would you just consider re-engaging with the Christian faith now, would you consider 
re-engaging with that faith you once had when you were younger, would you take one step towards God in your life again? And here's why I would encourage you to do that. I think something deep inside of us all really wants to know. There's something deep inside of you. There's like a spark in there that just hasn't died out. Like, like when you do something wrong, your conscience kind of elbows you. You go, why is that? Every once in a while, like, like there's a voice you hear deep inside of you. And this morning, I just wanted to tune into that voice. What if? What if it's actually God? What if it's actually God calling you to himself? Everybody has a longing to know. And so my invitation this morning is just, would you be willing to consider this as true? There's no better time to do that than on Christmas. So today, if you have your worship guide, you can pull that out. I want to give you six reasons, six theological reasons why you can trust the Christmas story. Five of them are rational, logical, biblical, and then one of them is more personal. Let's start with reason number one. If you're ready, say amen. The reason why you can trust the Christmas story is fulfilled prophecy. That's the first reason. If you want to actually go and see, you've got to ask, answer this, this one question. Did Jesus' birth result as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? And you're going to find the answer to that is yes. It's amazing. What other major religious leader's birth was predicted in advance? Uh, there's at least 10, 10 specific predictions about Jesus before he was ever born concerning Christmas. The prophet said in Micah 5 that he'd be born in Bethlehem. The prophet said that the Messiah would come out of Egypt, Hosea 11. The prophet said that he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. The prophet said he would be a son of David, 2 Samuel 7. The prophet said that he would suffer in Isaiah 53. Just read that chapter. See if you're not taken aback by that. The prophet said that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The prophet said that he would be silent before his accusers. They would gamble for his clothes, that none of his bones would be broken, that his hands and his feet would be pierced before they even invented crucifixion. On and on and on, prophecies about the birth of this one that would come, astronomical precision. Amazing. There's a big one, my favorite one's in Daniel chapter 9, which actually gives us a timeline that predicts when the Messiah would come, and it had to be during that certain window. Daniel said there would be an atonement made, there would be a divine visitation uh, to the temple, and all of that had to be fulfilled before 70 AD. Only Jesus fits that criteria, and only he he fits in in that window. And what that means is either Jesus was the Messiah that they were expecting, or there will never be one. The evidence here is compelling. Luke chapter 24, Jesus said this, All things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And they were. Isn't it fascinating that when you think about modern fantasy stories like Star Wars or uh, you know, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, that kind of stuff, there's always some prophecy about the one who's going to come and that person's going to make everything right. Let me let you in on a little secret. Copyright infringement on the original foretold birth story. And what all that means is is it doesn't just mean that Christmas is true. The real message is that God keeps his promises to his people Israel, and if God kept his promises to his people Israel, that means God's going to keep his promises to you too. Amen? Now you might say, what about that thought, Pastor Dave, I've heard that the Christmas story is really adapted from several pagan mythologies like Mithra and Addis. Christianity is really a copycat religion. For example, recently Bill Maher 
uh, went on The View and said the story of Jesus was just like the ancient story of Horus. And he said that it was an exact copy of that myth. And they kind of attack the uniqueness of the Christian message like this. And the sad part about that is people just accept and say, oh, yeah, that sounds right. They never actually read the story of Horus. They never actually investigated the claim. Have you ever read it? Because I just read it. And uh, here's what it says. Um, First of all, there was no virgin birth. Uh, Instead, Horus' mother Isis laid with the dead god Osiris to procreate with him. And then he rips out of his mother's womb. And he dies, not like Jesus died as a, a sacrificial death. Instead, he dies from a sting of a scorpion. And uh, he doesn't rise from the dead. Instead, he goes to the underworld uh, to go meet Osiris there, the god of the deceased. Yeah, that's like the same exact story of Jesus. I can see all the parallels. Hey, that's exactly the same thing, right? Okay, no. Mithra, Mithra was not born of a virgin. He emerged out of a rock and left a hole in a mountain there. Addis, Addis was the grandson of Zeus, Zeus drops some of his seed on a mountain, and then a tree grows there, and Addis' mother eats the fruit of that tree, and that results in her getting pregnant. That's a parallel to the Christmas story? That's an exact copycat? Then he's raised from the dead? Well, in one story, after he's killed, his hair continues to grow, and his little finger moves all the time. That's an exact parallel to the Christian story. Thanks, Bill Maher, for enlightening me about that just profound truth. I'm sorry, the idea of people coming out of rocks, trees growing out of blood from the ground is not a real parallel to the Christian faith on any significant level in terms of our worldview. Uh, We have a unique faith, very different from every other major world religion. And because of that uniqueness, it's true. Number two, the second reason why you can uh, trust the Christmas story is reliable documents. Can we say that together? Reliable documents. If you really want to be like the shepherds and go and see this thing that has happened, you've got to ask the question, do we have reliable documents that we can trust about the story of Jesus? And you'll find the answer is yes. We have over 5,800 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. That's more than any other ancient, ancient document that we know of. Do you know how many copies exist today of other ancient documents? Like, Do you know how many copies exist of Plato's writing? Can I get a drum roll here, Jeff? We have seven. Seven. How about uh, ancient copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars? Got ten. Histories of the the Roman historian Tacitus? Two. Kind of funny, right? You know what's not so funny? The double standard out there. Have you ever heard anyone question the historical reliability of Caesar's Gallic Wars? Me neither. You know what else? What do you think is the oldest surviving copy of Aristotle's works? A couple hundred years later, a couple decades later, a couple years later, 1,400 years later. Our earliest copy of Aristotle's works is from 1100 AD. That's 1,400 years after the guy was dead. Friends, we have not one, not two, not three. We have 12 manuscripts dating from within 100 to 200 AD And we have about 100 manuscripts from the first 300 years of the early church. New Testament scholar Dr. James White says it this way, The New Testament manuscript tradition is deeper, wider, and earlier than any other relevant work of antiquity. While we have fragments of the New Testament that date to within decades of the original writings, the average classical work has a 500-year gap 
between its writing and its first extant manuscript evidence. Friends, God has actually left us with an embarrassment of riches. He's not left us without a witness. Here's the next reason why you can trust the Christmas story. Eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. We have documents written by those people that were there. Peter, John, James, Jude, the Apostle Paul. All eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus in the first century. And our New Testament documents were written either by them or by those who got their information directly from them. And this is where skeptics like Bart Ehrman will say, well, how do you really know that? Uh, What if those Gospels are forgeries? He says in his book, Forge, that you see on the screen, in other words, what if they were not written by those original authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And if not, since you don't know who wrote them, uh, how can you trust them? How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, I'd say, I would acknowledge that the four Gospels that we have were originally written anonymously. Our earliest copies of them don't have an author at the top as the title, like you have them in your Bible. It was the early church fathers who attributed those works to them, which sounds strange at first when you hear that, but what you need to realize is that unlike in our day, it was actually really common for ancient biographical works to go uh, anonymous. Plutarch, for example, was a contemporary in the first century who wrote about 60 biographies around the same time as the gospel writers. He wrote about a variety of ancient figures. Now, how, how many times do you think Plutarch's name appears at the top of those bi- biographies? Zero. None. How do we know they were written by Plutarch? Well, because other people will attribute those biographies to Plutarch, and they do that all over the place. It's unanimous. Now, is it possible they were not written by Plutarch? I guess it's possible, but you have to admit it's really improbable. The same thing happened with our four Gospels. These were anonymous, but a number of early sources attribute them to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The earliest source is Papias, who wrote around 120 AD. He says Matthew, the tax collector, and one of Jesus' disciples wrote his gospel. And he says Mark, who was not an eyewitness but got his information from the apostle Peter, wrote the gospel according to Mark. And then he says John, the beloved disciple, wrote John's gospel. And Papias doesn't actually mention Luke. Just a little later, though, another early church father, Justin Martyr, mentions that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he says Luke was a physician, a doctor, the only scientist who wrote a book in the New Testament, who was also a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul and got his information from the first eyewitnesses. And if you read Luke chapter 1, that's exactly what Luke says he did. Luke wrote two volumes, the Gospel according to Luke, that's volume 1, and then volume 2 is the book of Acts, the history of the early church. Look again at the beginning of Luke chapter 1. Let's see how he begins his Gospel. Take a look on the screen. He says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, I would ask this. Why, if you're going to make up an author of the Gospels, why would you choose Luke? That doesn't make any sense to me. He was not part of the original 12. It really makes no sense why you would arbitrarily choose some fairly unknown follower of Jesus, a rather insignificant person, to write so much of the New Testament unless he actually did write so much of the New Testament. If you're going to make it up, why not say Peter wrote it? Or if you're going to make it up, why not say James, the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, wrote it? There's very good reasons to believe Luke actually wrote Luke. There's no other contradictory claim out there, by the way. 
So I take the traditional gospel writers to be who we think they are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now some people say, well, how how can you really trust what they wrote? Even if it is them, how do you know they just weren't writing legendary mythological material? The problem with that theory is if you look up at the screen, that's not written like any other legend that we've ever found in the works of antiquity. Luke writes here like an investigative journalist. He says, I I, I researched this stuff. I went to the eyewitnesses. I interviewed them. It's not written like a made-up story. He's writing here like a reporter. If what he's writing here was not true, you would have to say that his account fits into the genre of realistic prose fiction. The problem with that theory is that genre didn't exist at that time and wasn't even invented until about 400 years ago. C.S. Lewis was a literary scholar long before he was a Christian who makes this point very well. He says this, I've, re- I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, reportage, like from a reporter, or else some unknown writer without any known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative, the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. The Gospels were written down as history. They had no motivation to fabricate that, by the way. They had every reason not to write that down. The reward for their labor, the reward for following Jesus in the first century when they wrote that was death. Which leads me to the next reason you can trust the Christmas story. It records real history. Real history. This is what's so interesting to me, especially about Luke, the writer. How much attention Luke gives to every little detail. The historical time period, the background of the first century. When we go back and check for like archaeological confirmation with Luke's stuff, those things that can be checked out do check out. In fact, things that were first criticized by historians later get corrected by the archaeologists who confirm the biblical record. Uh, Take a look at this passage from Luke chapter 3. In here, he mentions a name of a leader named Lysanias. He says he was a tetrarch, a leader of Abilene. Now, archaeologists used to read that. They used to mock that and say, see, this proves Luke is sloppy and inaccurate. Uh, Everybody knows Lysanias was not a tetrarch. He was a king, and he died by execution like 63 years before this. Then, not very long ago... 15 miles northwest of Damascus, in an area of the first century known as Abilene, they find this inscription saying, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, date 27 AD. Just like Luke said he was. Turns out there was two Lysaniases, or Lysinii, I don't know how you say that. Australian archaeologist Clifford Wilson says it this way, those who know the facts now recognize that the New Testament must be accepted as a remarkably accurate source book. Recently, Dr. Craig Keener wrote this commentary on Luke's writings, just just on the the book of Acts. The thing is 7,000 pages long. He gives all these examples in this commentary, so technical, seemingly insignificant details that Luke gives, that are all corroborated as accurate, really small things. He's got a bunch of them in there. I don't want to bore you, but city officials, people, places, like in Acts 2, Luke just mentions Claudius at that time, expelled the Jews from Rome. Just a passing comment. You study that, that's exactly when Claudius did that. Luke was really careful 
That also means Luke was really careful in writing down the story of Jesus too. Which leads us to an interesting sub-point for those of you geeks out there. When you study historical events, this is for the technical people. Historians look for a few things that are the earmarks of authenticity. When critical scholars get together to verify that something in history is, is true, they look for certain criteria. One of them is multiple attestation. Meaning this fact is attested in multiple different independent sources, which the Gospels display. They also look for what they call verisimilitude, which is this account seems realistic. It seems like this could happen. This is exactly like the way things were in the first century culture. The third thing that they look for is really early sources. The closer you are to the events that have happened, the better. The Gospels were written within 30 years of Jesus' life. That's very, very early. Compared to other works of antiquity, that's amazing. The biography of Alexander the Great was written hundreds of years after he lived. Nobody questions the veracity of his biography, though. Another thing they look for that lends credence to authenticity is called the criteria of embarrassment. And what that means is they look for stuff that's embarrassing to the writer or embarrassing to the movement that they're a part of. Things that would otherwise hurt their cause. If you report that type of thing, it must be true. There would be no reason to make it up. For example, one time Jesus calls his chief apostle Satan. That's not a word of encouragement. There would be no reason to record that if you were trying to bolster the reputation of Peter. There's lots of examples of stuff like that. In the Christmas story, the shepherds, they would not be the first people you would record as being told the message. The virgin birth... Uh, you would not tell that story that way either. If they were making it up, why would you create a situation that's so open to the accusation of scandal? Why have Joseph and Mary betrothed there at the same time she gets pregnant? Why not have Joseph come along much later? As it is, Jesus gets accused of being born of immorality. You see what I'm saying? If these early church leaders were inclined to push an agenda and just make stuff up or whitewash the story they wouldn't have put that embarrassing stuff in there. Those, those, those are potentially counterproductive. I assert they only put them in there because they desired to tell us the truth of what happened. The last reason that you should really consider the truth of the Christmas story is the most important one. Uh, the last reason why uh, this is very important for you to look into is this very critical fact about Jesus, and it's this. He made claims of divinity. Claims of a divinity. Jesus claimed to be divine. Let me remind you of what Jesus said about himself. For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Or elsewhere, they asked him, do you think you're greater than our father Abraham? And he said, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. One time, Philip asked him in John 14, show us the Father. And Jesus said, as long as I've been with you and you don't know me, That's a claim to be one in essence with God. I could go on and on. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. He accepted worship. He received honors that only God should receive. And there's so many other things that Jesus says that we've heard them so many times because we've been reading the Bible in church that we just kind of take them for granted. But no other created being could say those kind of things. Like, like, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Can you imagine Moses saying that? Or Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. Can you imagine Isaiah the prophet saying that? No one knows me except the 
Those words would be blasphemy on the lips of anyone else. Their claims to be divine. This is why the Magi came to see this child. They came to worship him. So important. So important because a lot of people who play the Jesus game, they want to park Jesus in the same parking lot as the other religious leaders out there. But no other religious leader is making that kind of claim. Jesus won't let you park him there because he claimed to be divine. This week, we lost a a giant in the in the field of academic scholarship for evangelicals, R.C. Sproul. And this is what he said. The Christian claim is that in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, we meet God incarnate. Buddha never claimed to be anything more than a man. Mohammed claimed nothing more than to be a prophet. Moses and Confucius were mortals. If Christ was in fact God incarnate, then it is a travesty of justice to ascribe equal honor to him and to the others because Jesus claimed to be God. If you're like me, recently this month, in your home, you set up your decorations, and one of the things you set up each year is your nativity scene. It's a wonderful thing. Different pieces all carefully set in place, We remember young Mary, full of faith. We see Joseph there, full of fear. Angels blow trumpets. Wise men bear gifts. But there's another lesson that most people are not aware of here. Any good nativity set, hopefully yours at home, any good set worth its salt has two figures meant to teach you very important lessons. A lesson we must take to heart. It's a lesson taught by these two figures. See if you can spot these overlooked nativity participants in these paintings up on the screen. These two teachers are usually very close to each other. And they're often also very close to the baby. Look very carefully. They're focused and and gazing upon the new king. Have you spotted them yet? You can hardly miss them. I'm talking about what, Austin? Yep, the ox and the donkey. Close enough. The ox and the donkey, they are an ever-present duo, often painted with human characteristics, kneeling, praying, gazing at the Lord, right along with Mary, Joseph, and the rest. Have you ever noticed them before? Have you ever wondered why they're always there? Is it simply because Jesus was born in a manger and mangers have animals? That's part of the reason, but that's not all. You'll notice there's also a scriptural reason found in the book of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, which says this. The ox knows its owner, and a donkey knows its master's manger. But, my, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. This was a rebuke to rebellious Israel and an absurd comparison. And so as early as the second century, church theologians made the connection with the ox and the donkey in the manger. And from that time on, all painters and all nativity sets include them as worshipers of the Christ child. It's a silent rebuke of those who missed Jesus' birth 
because of their rebellion against their creator. Friends, it's not enough to feel sentimental or nostalgic for Christmas past. We must also experience the awe that one would feel coming before our sovereign God. We must know who our master is, just like the ox and the donkey teach us in Isaiah chapter 1. Born a child and yet a king. Friends, God desires that you not only know him, but that you also submit to him and recognize him for who he is. Our Lord and our God. So, I have a challenge for you. As you go back home and celebrate with your family tonight and tomorrow, take your nativity set, look for the ox and the donkey, and don't relegate them to the back row. Move them up close to the baby. They are our teachers. They are our role models. They know who this baby really was and is, the very Son of God. So, why can you trust the Christmas story? Well, here's a few reasons. I'll put them back up on the screen. Fulfilled prophecy, reliable documents, eyewitness testimony, real history, claims of divinity. Five theological reasons. Now let me give you a personal reason. The reason I trust Jesus is because of what Jesus did for me. Jesus forgave every sin I ever committed. During that time in my life where I went on that search for truth, I also had a personal crisis and I became very aware of my own shortcomings. In that, I became desperate for an answer to that question and I was only able to find an answer in the person of Jesus Christ because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of his sins, of our sins, of my sins. But he shed his blood for me and for the whole world. And that's the message of Christmas, that when God looked down and he saw us as sinners, he didn't walk away from us, he moved toward us. And that's why he means everything to me. He's my savior. And that's why he's the most important thing in my life. Which brings me to you. What will be your reaction to the Christmas story? What will be your reaction to this Jesus? Will your story be that you clung to your doubts and you clung to your fears so tightly that you wouldn't believe that God cared about you? Or will your story be that you humbled yourself before your God and opened your heart to him? Deep inside of us, we all want to know. There's some part of you that wonders. There's some part of you that still wants to know. And maybe there's some part of you that it's that part of you that's, this message is kind of get on, getting on your nerves this morning. Because every once in a while, you find yourself having a conversation with a God you don't even know you believe in. And God is calling you back to himself. And that's why I want to encourage you to take a step now to engage with the Lord. This whole series is called Waiting for Jesus, and we're wrapping it up today. But here at the end, maybe we should turn that question around for a moment. What if it's more like Jesus is waiting for you? What if Jesus is the one waiting for us? Worship team, would you come? In a moment, we're going to sing a song. In a moment, we're going to worship. Because that's what you do in the presence of Christ, the God-man. You worship. 
And so as we sing these songs in the next few moments, I just want to give you an opportunity to think about what we've heard today and think about what it would look like for you to re-engage with your faith this year. What would it look like to re-engage with God this Christmas? Maybe for you it means opening up your Bible that you haven't opened in a long time. Maybe for some of you it means you're going to go home and say, you know, honey, we're going to get our family back in church this year. I don't know what your first step is, but this Christmas, would you consider re-engaging with the person of Jesus Christ? Humbling yourself. Because that voice that you hear deep inside of you, that thing rattling around inside of you that says, I ought to, but I'm afraid, or I get too busy sometimes. Would you not miss the opportunity in front of you? Would you not miss the chance to be open to what God wants to do in and through you this Christmas and this next year?